BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. The Incomparable, number 652, February 2023. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. This is an episode of our book club. And as announced on our previous book club, we gave you a warning. We are reading Babel, or The Necessity of Violence, colon, An Arcane History of the Oxford Translators Revolution, here and after, to be referred to as Babel, by R.F. Kuang. I am Jason Snell. I already said that part. Let me introduce you to our panelists, or are they the members of our book club? I I don't know. Dan Morin. Hello. Oh, uh, hi, Jason. I like books. <laughs> All right. Well, you're in a club about them, so that worked oh. out. Oh, I've, well, I wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have Did me. Did you mean you... When you said like books, did you mean you write books? Because you also oh, yeah, do that. But I don't. I don't like doing. That. <laughs> <He> <laughs> that's, that's work. That's not, no, no, that's, the, that's when you don't like books. Aline exactly. Sims is also here. Hello. Hello. I don't write books, but I read a lot of them. Nice, nice. Glenn Fleischman is here. He's been. He knows about how books are printed. Frankly, so there you uh, go. Salve, Jason Hicksum Leatus. Oh, Glenn. Wow, Glenn ruined it already. Scott McNulty is here. He reads all the books and then forgets about them. He's he's forgotten more books than I've read. Hi, Scott. Hello. I I like clubs. Right. Well, good. You're in one. <laughs> Erica Ensign is here. Hello. Hello. I I've written things that have been in published books. Mm-hmm. That kind of counts. And uh, is this her first time in the Uncomfortable? I don't know. Maybe you know her though. I'm sure you know her and love her. Because to know her is to love her. It's Deb Stanish. Hi, Deb. Hi. I'm so excited. This is my first book club. This is like so cool. Deb has club. edited books. There's, I have edited books. I've been in books. There's, there's tea more. over there. There's wine over there. There's Ooh. little Don't crackers and cheese down here. Ghost cheese. Don't don't ghost let them cheese. near the cheese. What? Do not eat the ghost cheese. <laughs> the ghost cheese. The ghost. Uh, there's a game show episode Ooh, involving nah. lots of ghosts and cheese. Uh, so Babel by R.F. Kuang. This is a book recommended to us by Scott McNulty. Scott, explain <gasps> yourself. Uh, uh, yes, Babel. So I read Babel and I thought. This is a fine, if perhaps slightly too long, book that I enjoyed <laughs> and will force other people to read, uh, <laughs> mostly because A, it has footnotes, which I love in a book, uh, and B, I think it's, a, you know, it's it's about big swooping themes that, uh, you know, the kids are talking about, colonialism and all that stuff, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good. And, and other people 
seem to like it. Maybe not other people that are on this podcast. I don't know. Uh, but It's a uh, real book club. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a variety of, of I views. read this book. You must read it now, too. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, I have you to thank, Scott. It is. You're welcome. I, I was thinking about um, the book that this reminds me the most of, and I don't know. It, it reminds me of a lot of different books in little ways. I don't think there's a direct analog, but I was thinking about the fact that the uh, Texcalon books um, by Ar- Arcade Martin are, I was thinking about them politically, right? Because that's space opera. Mm-hmm. But those books are space opera that is about empire, right? A memory called empire. Uh, it's in the title, everybody. Um, <laughs> right and, and this book is about that too. It is explicitly, it is set during the British empire. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about it is magic exists here. It's a form of magic involving, uh, using inscribing words on silver, uh, and the difference it's like sort of like magnets, except for meanings, uh, the difference between the definitions of the word in the two languages create a magical thing to happen. And this is the, uh, this rather than the industrial revolution is really an engine that is powering the British empire to great, uh, success. So it's a recognizable British empire where everything has pretty much happened as it has in our history, except powered by magic, um, which places our characters who are sort of at the center of magical knowledge in Great Britain uh, at the center of the power of empire. And the, the question instead of it being one of those fun coming of age stories where people learn about magic, uh, it becomes uh, one of those fun coming of age stories where people learn that they are at the center of a of an empire and that if the empire is immoral, they should use their every uh, effort to uh, destroy it. <laughs> so, is that about right? <laughs> yeah. Jason, you yeah. know, I had exactly the same, the same thought uh, about like the, the themes uh, of the books. And it reminded me of a memory called empire and uh, in the other book in that series. And while I preferred those other books, I will lay those cards on the table. I think that one of the benefits of Babel here is that this book is going to be more accessible to, I think, a lot of people because all of the the entire empire in a memory called Empire, it's all it's space opera, like you said. So it's it's alien planets. These are they're humans, humanoids, uh, right. but they are they are not on Earth. Whereas got names Babel like- takes nine helicopter and stuff like that exactly exactly and uh and here we have characters who are in an alternate history of our actual own world it is largely set in oxford which is a real place and a real university with real colonialist empirist you know awful people that existed you know throughout history and i think that when it comes to using fantasy and science fiction to learn about uh about society, which I think is one of the fundamental things that that those genres do very well. I think that that this book is probably going to be more of a winner for a lot of people in terms of helping, you know, for the, I have no doubt that every single person on this podcast was already pretty down on empire and colonialization. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, we'll see. But, Scott, you never know. I mean, but, it's not all bad. <laughs> but I think <laughs> that, um, that there are a lot of people out there, especially younger people. <laughs> 
who maybe have not really thought about that, and especially you know people who grew up young and white and privileged like I did. So I feel like a book like this is going to do a better job of opening people's eyes to all of that stuff than something that's a little harder to get into than, say, a science fiction book with strange names like Three Seagrass, um, who... Yeah, that's a great name, but it's a little bit off-putting if that's not the kind of thing you're used to. So so while this may not be my favorite book, I think it's kind of like uh, uh, something that I might recommend before some books that I like better simply because of the accessibility <laughs> of the subject matter and the fact that it takes place in a world that people will relate to. I agree that the subject matter is very accessible. The writing is very accessible. Um, I, I learned more about language than I have in any English class I've ever taken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also what, like 700 pages long or something. It was like a 24 hour audio 545 pages, according to. Okay. Reads, it's, yeah. but yeah, like it's, it felt it's, like 700. It, I, <laughs> oh, it's a my, dense 545. It uh, yeah, it is. And, and part of my trouble with it too was like, I, I got about halfway through and I'm like, yep, already on board. Colonialism, not great. Mm-hmm. Capitalism, not great. And then it continued for another mm, like yes. 13 hours of listening time. <laughs> and I, I was just like, listening to this. <laughs> it, I couldn't imagine reading it. I, 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 I just with my eyeballs, I think they would have bled. And I it was good, but it could have used a great many cuts. Like it could have been a lot shorter. I think it could have been, uh, could have been two books. Um, and I think there are books like that. Well, I think of like the, um, the golden compass and the, uh, the his successors. Dark materials. His dark yeah. materials. Right. Thank you. Philip Pullman. Uh, that series I think ends very abruptly. The first book is like, and boom. And you're like, wait a minute. You, you left out the conclusion of this book. Oh, it's in the next book. But this one, I think, um, I mean, I read, I thought it was, uh, I think accessible is a good word. Like I started reading it. I was like, oh, this is great. This is, you know, any book about language I'm a sucker for any book about 19th century history, about the trouble of empire that's got foot. Like this is just, you know, it's catnip for me. But I thought I just, I zoomed through it and it was a long zoom, you know, 500 something pages is is a long, (laughs) it's a long zoom, Um, but I didn't feel like I was bogged down. Look, I mean, compare this to Anathem, which I also really liked and I've Mm -hmm. read multiple times by uh, Neil Stevenson. Uh, It it has its own issues, its own book, but it teaches you language. This is, uh, this is referencing language and giving you insight into it. Um, but I do think it's got kind of, uh, if inside of us are two wolves, inside this book are kind of three novels. And one is kind of about, I mean, there's themes that stretch throughout it, but there's different phases in people's lives. And there's sort of an extended, I don't think we're spoiling, extended battle-ish scene towards the end that goes on. And I feel like it could have been structured. Like, it's my, like, it's my criticism of it, I think, as well, is it was long, but I don't think I was understood in the story i think it had been structured differently it could have read um better i don't know if she was pushed to put it into a single uh volume or not which can happen as well but um I, it you know I, stories that are full of me having to read <laughs> latin and greek and mandarin and so forth i'm like all right that's fine i'm happy with that Anathem is 400 pages longer than this book, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. It's, uh, it's a like 400 pages. Wow. Um, thinner, pa- thinner paper. <laughs> I liked about 75% of this book. Mm. <laughs> it's the first 75%. Yeah. Um, mm. I think this book is 
very well written. I think the point, uh, you know, that the author has set out to make, uh, I think she does a great job of it. Um, I need to set aside that from the fact that I did not enjoy the last quarter of this book. Part of it for the reasons Aline described, which is like, yep, get your point. Uh, let's let's keep going. <laughs> and part of it is just I really intensely found the last. I, we haven't gotten to the spoiler part yet, I assume, but the oh. the la, the last couple chapters of yeah. this is just. I was hard, and I I mm-hmm. pushed myself to finish it, but it was not something I enjoyed. And I get that the part part of the the message of this book is that this should make you feel uncomfortable. Mm. Nailed it. <laughs> um, but but well, re- I think I mean, revolutions you know, in the title, right? And I feel like yeah, that, that abs- in, in a way she really wants to live up to the what would happen truly in a revolution. Which and, is- and I think I don't. I, I going into it, maybe I did not. I sort of you know went into this fairly um, unknowing of what the sort of you know whole plot was. I like Glenn. I was like, oh, language is magic. This is cool. This is interesting. The, I loved it. I, you know, I laughed at the forward at the beginning where she's writing about like this is a fictional Oxford. Relax, everybody. If I get stuff in the wrong place or whatever, <laughs> like that made that amusement. It's like, oh, great. This is, a, this is very accessible. And then I just felt like the book. You know, it takes a left turn <laughs> at at one point. Around three quarters of the way to where uh, lots of people start dying. Yes. And then I'm like, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, And I just, I struggled. I struggled a lot with it and I got to the end and I feel like I found the conclusion that our characters reached perhaps logical, but entirely antithetical to my own beliefs. And that was so hard to deal with for me that I just was like, I, I cannot say that I enjoyed this book. And again, I'll distinguish that Ooh. from being something that I think is well-written and a good idea or like a, full of good ideas and, and like well-constructed to a point. But I, oh, I, yeah, I, I, maybe life is too short for me to read books I don't enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to agree with what Erica was saying about this and everybody's been saying about the accessibility of this because I just read this very recently but I've been seeing it all over book talk for months. And the the way that this has hit younger readers, and I'm talking, you know, early 20s, not talking teens, because I don't think it's really sort of in the YA genre, but, you know, just people bawling their eyes out, because as you said, the deaths are uncomfortable, and they're hard, and they're really hitting people emotionally in ways that, you know, sort of like the the fake Colleen Hoover drama Dermanstrung um, does, but in a way that's making them uncomfortable and also thinking about, especially a lot of white people reading this, thinking about, um, you know, the issues in ways that, you know, we see it on the news, we see it in social media, but when you're talking about being as invested in these characters as you are in the beginning, and then just watching the deaths are very unflinching. They're not, they're not grand, they're not dramatic. Well, maybe Robbins is grand and dramatic, but people (laughs) die unceremoniously. And it just means, it it has just really meant so much to people reading this for the first time and coming to the story the first time that I have to give so much respect to the text for that. Because like Erica, you said, it is something that people get instantly recognized. It hits those dark academia themes that are so popular right now. And people just are really clinging to this. And I think that's pretty cool. 
This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN. You probably heard by now you should be using a VPN when you connect to the internet, but adding an extra step to anything you do every day can sound like a hassle. Well, if you knew how easy it is to protect your connection with ExpressVPN, you'd be doing it already. ExpressVPN is the easiest way to browse safely, securely, and just better. I've used ExpressVPN uh, when I'm in another country. In fact, I'm about to take a trip to another country. Can't wait to use ExpressVPN there to get back to all the services that I pay for that are only available in the United States. Also, of course, you're in a weird place with free open Wi-Fi. A VPN means that all of the data that's passing over the free open unencrypted Wi-Fi is encrypted via the VPN so people can't sniff it. That's good, too. ExpressVPN gets rid of all the things you hate about VPNs. They do it right. First of all, it's blazing fast. Lots of other VPNs slow your connection to the point where it's not even worth it. But ExpressVPN doesn't lag or buffer. You can stream in HD with no issues. And using it couldn't be easier. Just open the ExpressVPN app. I use it on my iPad. Tap one button. Boom instant protection across all your devices. The fact is, once you connect to ExpressVPN, you don't even realize you have it on, but your connection is still there, secure, encrypted. And of course, you can spoof your location so you can say, hey, I'm back home in the United States, even if you're not there right now. Isn't that nice? No wonder it was called the best VPN by CNET. So right now, go to expressvpn.com slash Snell, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash Snell to get three extra months of ExpressVPN. expressvpn.com slash Snell. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting the incomparable. Well, while we're talking about it, I'm going to, I'm just going to say, uh, there, this is a spoiler zone. So, uh, we're going to talk Bring about everything that's in the book. And if you haven't read the book and don't want to be spoiled, you probably shouldn't have listened to a podcast about it, but please go away now and <laughs> come back after you're done with all of those yeah. pages. Um, because yes, I, I wanted to mention, so yeah, the, I told, uh, Lauren, as I was reading, I was like, oh, I reached the chapter where almost everybody dies. Um, and there is, there is a chapter <laughs> wow. where almost everybody dies. Uh, and then some other people die later, a lot later to Dan's point. Um, but I, I think something Deb mentioned there really struck me, which is, okay, this is about a group of four characters who are young and are students at the school of language in Oxford where it, where they basically, they make huge profits by, first off, they shake down the British public by telling them they need to maintain things that don't need to be maintained or they <laughs> design them to break so that they can get paid to fix them. Um, so they're, they're unethical on that level. And then of course they're supporting the empire. Um, three of these characters are not white, right? We have a, we have a kid from China. Um, we have a girl from the Caribbean. Uh, and Haiti, I believe. Haiti. Oh, from Haiti. Yeah, you're yeah. right. She's she's Haiti from Haiti. Via, Haiti via France. Via yeah. France. Uh and where is the other character from? From uh, from India. India. From Kolkata. India. Mm -hmm. Uh are, the fourth member of the four of the foursome is a high class uh is an admiral's daughter, a high class white English girl. And they are and and I think what Deb was saying um about some reactions to this book is a, I'm going to say, clever move by R.F. Kuang to create mm -hmm. a viewpoint character for white readers. <laughs> and then she completely betrays the other <laughs> characters and, like, doesn't, and, and acts like she understands them and she doesn't understand them. And it's hard. 
it's really brutal. And then she appears at the end and basically tries to talk them into surrendering. And that is also, um, uh, brutal. Um, it's, I think it's set up fairly well. I think I, I was always a little bit skeptical of whether that character really believed anything that was going on. Um, even, I mean, there's, there's a moment, okay. There's a moment where our main character kills his father <laughs> using magic happens. and then they all decide that they're going to cover it up. This is when the book, I think kind of starts to fall apart in some ways, but, mm-hmm. um, but even in that moment, Letty, I don't, I don't really ever believe that she's doing anything other than um, helping them because they're her friends and it's expedient to do so in her betrayal. I had that moment where I was like, when she, there's a moment where she walks out the front door and I'm like, oh yeah, she's betraying them right now because it was very clear. Oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. that was, yeah. that was yeah. very yeah. clear. <laughs> I mean, it's very much like she's this, it, it sort of also, you know, gets to the heart of, of white feminism where it's like she is, she's a downtrodden character as well. And one of the reasons that they all band together is because she's, she's a girl and she's at Oxford and that is not a normal thing. And she wasn't even supposed to be there. She's only there because her brother died so therefore she gets to go uh you know to to fill his boots um and it's uh you know at the, at the beginning you're sort of led to believe that she's one of the gang and i don't know maybe it's because i have read the poppy war uh, which was a, a previous work by rf huang and um it was one of the most brutal books that i have, have ever read and i kind of ended up feeling a little bit the same way about that as, as i did about this it is effective and really long and really brutal. So uh, this sort of started out feeling kind of the same way. That, so I kind of expected it to go in that direction. So for me, the the turn, to me, it didn't feel like a left turn. It felt like the turn that I was just expecting to come all the way through. I didn't find it surprising that almost everybody died. It was like, okay, finally, we got to the part where everybody's dying <laughs> because I knew it was coming. And I just it just hadn't gotten there yet because I actually found the beginning of it to be kind of long. I don't I didn't I don't feel like I needed as much time getting to know these characters and and understanding why they appreciated the cushy life they were leading. But I can see why some people might. I, for some reason, this reminded me of like, I think if I had read this book when I was in my early 20s, it would have been like just a banger, like a real eye opener. It would have changed my life. It would have been yeah. amazing. But mm-hmm. I came to it too late. I keep thinking about Dune, which is a book that I can't stand. But I think if I would have read it when I was like 20, I would have loved the heck out of it. But now I'm just like, oh, my God, I'd rather watch the David Lynch movie. So uh, I, I, I think that there's a lot of... I also, like Deb did, I knew that this was on Book Talk and like it was very big with sort of the the younger uh, white lady reader set. And uh, and it, that kind of made sense to me as I was reading it. I was like, yep, yep, this checks out. I, I get it. Um, so so for me, it it really rolled out the way that I expected it to kind of all the way along. And I just wanted that role to be a little shorter. That was sort of how I felt. See, I felt that they left too much on the table. Like there was so much that wasn't covered. I kind of wish that they had, uh, you know, maybe pulled back on the repetition of the colonialism. I agree. We got that point. We got that point. We got that point. But the whole Aramis Society, like I feel there's a whole nother book there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the and yeah. the epic love triangle that, you know, existed between Griffin, Evie and Sterling. You know, there was history there that we didn't get any really get any of. Like, it just felt like there was, they skimmed, she skimmed over, like, some things that I thought could have filled some of those pages, rather than the repetition of the, of the colonialism theme. Uh, No, I was going to say that I am just glad to hear that I am hip with the kids on the book talk. (laughs) 
because uh, <laughs> very I, hip. Very I was hip. on TikTok for like a week, and I realized that that entire week I spent on TikTok because it is insidious, and then I deleted TikTok. But that's another <laughs> much like Empire, it just gets into you, oh, and I you see. are slowly boiled to and and uh, mm-hmm. it, it seduces you with its pleasures. <laughs> Talking about the turning point of the book being when Robin kills his father um, mm-hmm. in a fit of pique. Um, I mean, deserved, right? The guy's awful. Yeah, he's horrible. I almost didn't. There's a very graphic scene where he beats Robin at very close to the beginning of the book. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I'm even going to read this book. Like, I Mm -hmm. almost dropped out entirely. Um, So I did some Googling to see if that ever came up again. And then the text was like, and he never beat him again. And I was like, okay, well, I I guess I'll continue reading. But he was so awful, right? But when that happened, like I spent the entire time wondering, okay, what what is the thing that happens in this book? Because it was just, it was a very long narrative without a lot of impactful things. Like there are things that happen, but they're not huge things, right? And so Robin kills his father and it's like three quarters of the way through. And I'm like, oh, we finally got to like the thing that happens, the thing that you hang your hat on in the book. And that pacing was was such a challenge for me. And I think that that was exacerbated by, um, Deb, your point about there were stories in there that could have been pulled forward and told because, as I say on like every single book club episode, I'm about characters and I didn't have a character I was rooting for. I had characters that I sympathized with. I had characters who I felt were all of the people of color in this book are treated horribly. Right. But there's not a person. There wasn't a person that I could like hang my hat on and be like this this is the person I'm invested with. This is the one that I want to see, you know, succeed. And then nope. they it killed just kinda... the one I like the best. Rami. <laughs> I like Rami the best. Right. And they yeah. Killed him. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. It's funny, Aline, you mentioned the, um, so the thing that I brought up about the, about him killing his father, that's not the thing that happens. I think the thing that happens is even later in the book, which is, which is the mm. moment where they have the assault basically on the, on the library and they're, I mean, they're, they've been when they've been found out and then a bunch of people die and it's like, OK, revolution for real now. We're no longer going to sign. I mean, they're basically like we're going to sign some Internet petitions and see what happens. And then a bunch of people die and they're like, OK, we're going to blow up the school. <laughs> and it happens yeah, I, like uh, that. But it's very that, late in the game. Th- that is the thing where I feel like <laughs> the author's point overwhelmed the story. Like mm. it, it felt to me like it turned. I don't want to use the. I feel uh, com- com- complicated about using the word screed, but it felt like it turned into more of a little didactic. Yeah, it, it got to that point of being a little preachy instead of telling a story. And I lost, like Aline, I lost my sort of sympathies. Not sympathies, that's not the right word. But like, I, I was just like, oh, everything is awful and this is terrible and I don't like how any of this is going. And again, I understand that's kind of the point, but it did mm-hmm. not make me want to read it more. 
Maybe and it's just because a, that's, that's how that's how I foresaw it ending from the very beginning that it didn't mm. it didn't bother me well, see, as I, much. Yeah, I had no knowledge of the. I had never read read anything else by. Oh, I, I hadn't either. I went into it cold. All I knew was like it was hip with it was hip with the hip youth with the kids and Scott. Yep. Yeah, and it was by RF Kwan. <laughs> I'm a kid. And I did read that one other book. Uh, <laughs> it's like so, I, I so hadn't I had read that. anything by her. I didn't know <laughs> anything about this. I went in totally cold, and for me that was. I found it well, jarring, but yeah. Did you find it was kind of the <clears throat> kind of my girl dust, right? Like I remember seeing that movie, you know, thirty something years ago. It's, Spoilers it's for my girl. <laughs> yeah, <that's great. laughs> Blow the spoiler horn, please. Nineteen eighty nine, please, or something. Um, yeah, I mean, you get Current to that point. I, I actually couldn't believe the people died. I don't. I don't know if anyone else had that opinion. As people were going through, I'm like, oh, well, they'll probably find the Resurrecto Stone or <laughs> something later. I mean, I'm thinking too magically, but I was like, wait, did they just kill him and him and her and him and them and her and i'm like this can't okay uh and now and now you know the suicidal kind of impulses and you're like i i all right i mean i i don't think i had it nearly as much of a problem with other folks who i mean i did find it jarring and surprising but it didn't take me totally out of the like appreciation of the novel but it Mm -hmm. still was it's and it wasn't like girlfriend fridging or something as bad as that there were there were specific reasons and things that were being resolved but it did seem like uh, oh you know in shakespeare i learned this some point out probably in high school or college right it was like oh the reason everyone dies at the end of hamlet or they bring everyone on at the end of the hamlet is they have to carry all the corpses off so a bunch of people kill each other arg, 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 and then the guy from poland marches on the fort and broad he's like oh well let us march Norway. these bodies off to whatever you're like yes because they had and it's a little bit of the well i want to kill a bunch of people for for reasons and then we're going to clear the stage for something new, but we kind of didn't get that. We got an epilogue. Yeah, I was. I I wanted to see the. De- I wanted to see the apocalyptic destruction that was that was wrought by <laughs> by the, the fall of the tower. I was, but that's just me. Like it, it no, I, I, I want to see it. I, I, I kind of did too. I just want to watch the world burn. I, I kind of yeah. did because, uh, and I know I said this earlier, but like the revolutions in the title, right? Like I kind of there was a moment toward the end where I thought, oh, I see what's happening here, which is. Say you want a revolution, right? It's like this is this is what's going to happen. Is let's let's do it. Let's play it out, and it's going to be messy and it's going to be awful, and you're going to have to make terrible decisions. They they have that thing where they're where they're holding the the country hostage essentially, and they blow up the Westminster Bridge, and it's basically like they well they blew gonna, it up. They let it. They, they let, let it. it they let it collapse. <laughs> they yeah. let it expire. Essentially, mm-hmm. they blew it up. But yes, that's right. Through their inaction, they allowed they yeah. la- allowed it to. Bridge to come to be harm. destroyed. This is, this is the worst Eula ever. <laughs> In the immortal words of Rush, if you choose not to decide, you still, you still have, have made, made a choice. choice. <laughs> and Thank down you. that bridge goes. Uh, but that is, they're using the, the the Empire's tactics against, against itself, them. though, right? Because yep. mm-hmm. that's that's exactly. the whole point of this, right? The whole point is mm-hmm. Empire is bad. It is awful. People you like are going mm-hmm. to die because of it. Yeah. But also, you have roads and indoor plumbing. And so you're like, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're going to... It's still bad, though. And and also, (laughs) I think that there's an argument to be made here that it's sort of like, well, you know, yeah, you can complain about being part of a corrupt society, right? An unjust society. But what are you doing about it, right? I mean, that's really Mm -hmm. one of the... you You could view... You know, Letty is a complicated character, but like part of the way I viewed her was she's the comfortable white woman in England who... um can talk a good game, but really doesn't want the world to change. And the book Mm -hmm. is sort of like puts these characters in a position where, um, are you going to, because they're at Babel, 
they're either part of the machinery. Essentially, this is what happens with the whole secret society that's of rebels is you're either in the machine or you're against the machine. Those are sort of your options. And so they they turn against the machine. And, and then at that point, like, you know, I know, I know it's upsetting. <laughs> I get that. But I, I did appreciate what I appreciated about the carnage that happens at the end of this book is that I feel like it's 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 playing fair with the idea that like this is what if you take on the British Empire, what did you think was going to happen? And you can deal it a, a yeah. pretty serious blow. But the response is going to be that almost everybody is going to die in one chapter of this book, which is what happens. <laughs> Can I tell you, there's one, there's one passage that hit me about Letty in particular. It's uh, about two thirds of the way through. It's after she finally understands what's going on with the secret mm -hmm. society and all that. And this is, I thought this was a, one of the most brilliant paragraphs in the whole book. Uh, still, something did not seem right. And Robin can tell from Victoire's and Rami's faces that they thought so, thought so too. It took him a moment to realize that what it was that grated on him and when he did, it would bother him constantly now and thereafter. It would seem a great paradox, the fact that after everything they had told Letty, all the pain they had shared, she was the one who needed comfort. Yes. Yep. And I White immediately thought tears. of Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, mm -hmm. where among other things he says... He's talking about the the white moderates failing. He says, "I he says they will say, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action." And as you read that letter, you're like, "Oh, she's not quoting from it, but she is humming that song for sure." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I spent a lot of time reading, you know, from the mass murder on, thinking about how we're still grappling with these issues, not in a world dominated by magic on silver bars, not in a world that's dominated by England anymore, although we still feel the effects of colonialism and imperialism. But these same, we are singing the same tune over a century after this book was set. And I think that that's part of why it's resonating so much on TikTok is that when we we talk about Black Lives Matter, when we talk about, I mean, I lived a, I live a block from where the the protests happened in 2020 in Seattle, and the police firing tear gas into the crowds and all of that kind of stuff. This is why it's resonating, is because these things are still happening today. This song is still being sung today, and I was thinking about, I think a lot about violent revolutions and. It would be really interesting. I don't think that there's a way to quantify this, but how much revelation and revolution has to happen because people respond to violence versus quiet revolutions that happen by inches and cajoling and getting other people to see your point of view. And I don't know, like... I didn't love the violence that happened in the book. I didn't love that so many characters I liked died, but also it felt like something that was true to life, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which really sucks. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I really, I really felt the same way that I was always reading this. It's like, she is talking about 
every modern issue that we're currently dealing with. She's just, you know, getting past what is that that book about um, C.S. Lewis, past watchful dragons. She's getting past the watchful dragons of, you know, wokefulness or whatever garbage is is dominating these conversations today. And she's putting it in a setting that makes it seem historical. But they're all issues that we're dealing with now. I mean, Letty was the classic white feminist with the white woman tears. And why won't people understand my struggle? Mm -hmm. And that puts me on the same playing field. I mean, we see that played out like today. And the idea that, you know, sitting behind a keyboard and being a Twitter warrior is, is what is that accomplishing when there's people out in the streets who are living this you know, I can tweet all I want all day long about injustice, but there's I, I don't live it. I don't understand it. And I think she really pulls, we, you know, maybe we don't have a global empire like the like the British we now, but we certainly have um, a capitalistic empire that takes advantage of of all of us. And, you know, the idea of the planned obsolescence of the silvers, you know, yeah. built into the fabric mm-hmm. of our society today. Um, it's it really is taking all of these modern issues and conceptualizing it into this fantasy story. But it's stuff that's happening in the news right now. Yeah, the Letty thing was the one bit of the book that truly surprised me. And not that she had that turn, like I kind of saw that coming. It was the fact that, as we as we mentioned, for many of us, the character that we liked the most was Rami. And Letty was in love with Rami. And the fact that she is the one who kills him. Awesome. And at first you think that she did it maybe accidentally. And oh, my God, she's so upset. But no, she 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 did it intentionally because she was so emotionally messed up by the fact that she, they, they just couldn't understand her. They just couldn't see where she was coming from. And the idea of the white woman here, I think, doing the most violence to my heart in this book was kind of a, a nice uh, a, a nice cherry on top of the, you know, terribly colonialist Sunday that this book is is made up of, because that that was a shock to me. And as as the shock sort of wore off, it was kind of like, Oh right, yeah. Like that actually, that actually makes sense, and that hurts even more. Well, it's a good like anti Dumbledore's army argument, and there too, to be really honest. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know how much any of this is a reaction to or parallel to the Harry Potter series, but the Harry Potter series, you know, is very convenient in terms of uh, sort of race and motivation and cause and and the you know ethnic presentation and so forth, and the fact that our heroes are are youthful sort of juvenile age heroes. They're the ones who they find the secret society. They join, they go to the hidden library. They're protected by spells basically. And then it does them no avail. There is no army coming to rescue them. There is no solution here. And, um, you know, there's all there's it's like Masada, right? The the Babel mm-hmm. reminded me of the Masada mm-hmm. story, sure. which is, uh, you know, if you're an Israeli soldier, everyone has to go there and uh, and you swear the oath and so forth. But it's um, it's that there are things that are worth uh, tearing down things to their foundations, even though you'll lose your life because uh, otherwise you'll be so compromised. You'll be enslaved in a way that, you know, your people can never recover from. Um, so you have to be in a bigger position than that. And that, you know, that's definitely, um, you know, a lot of people die in Harry Potter and a lot of people, people like die in Harry Potter, particularly a couple at the end for no particular reason. Uh, and, um, that kind of betrayal of the secret, the betrayal of the secret location really felt again, not like a per se response, but it really puts that into sharp relief. I, you know, it's despite my conflicted feelings about the book, I can't deny that it is a incredibly thought provoking in it. Like I've, I've wrestled with it since finishing it, which was like, 
24 hours ago. Um, but like, you know, I, I certainly find that it's something that sticks in your mind because all the issues brought up as, as several of you have said, like are very clear parallels to things that we are dealing with the world. You know, this book has a very distinct point of view and it is like in the best tradition of speculative fiction, commenting in on our current world by transposing it to a different time and place. Um, so I, I thought that all those points were, were well-made and well-constructed um, I just, again, I thought the, st the story to me suffered a little bit as a result, yeah. but I, I do think there's a lot of value in what this book is saying and in the way that it presents it. Well, I was thinking about a memory called empire again, and I, it is, I mean, I like this book. I think I give four stars on Goodreads. I like it. I, I liked a memory called empire better. I mean, it's one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years. So of course, but mm -hmm. one of the things I appreciate about a memory, a memory called empire is that it is. Maybe because it's slightly more abstract, um, yeah. and therefore, and harder to get into, and hard to pronounce names, and all, and and all the sci-fi space opera trappings. But it's making a lot of, if not all, of the same points as makes, this book. Makes you work a little harder, but but you yeah. got to work a little yeah. harder, and it's a little more metaphorical. And I think it's, I think storytelling wise, it's just sort of better handled. I, th this book, you know, as a book, I liked a lot. It does feel overlong. It does feel like there are sections where the book is trying very hard to convince us that Empire is bad after showing us that Empire is bad and explaining to us that Empire is bad. And it's like, ah, oh, we got it, book. We got it. I, there's a lot of that. I, I haven't even mentioned about killing his father on the on the boat. Actually, the, cow. The, 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 the most angry I got at this book was in the section that follows that because there are so many very clear, simple ways to yeah. uh, hide the fact of a murder of a character who is an old man on a weeks long sea voyage getting back to England from China that, and they are so dumb with what they do. And I, and, and it felt like idiot plot kind of stuff where it's like, well, they need to make it, they need to make them dumb so that they'll feel pressure. And so that people will question it. And I was like, this is about as clean a, a murder as you're going to get. I think you guys could cover it up. And I, the fact that I they don't like, just frustrates oh, me so much. Yeah. I, I, I understand. Like I had, I had those moments and there were like, there were definitely beats where I was like, Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. But I felt like, in the long opening section where we got to know these characters and where they came from and what they did, that uh, for the most part, they were so pampered and coddled and insulated from the actual world. Like that was something that that kind of came up again and again, that like, yes, we are here, so we don't have to deal with the rest of the world, that none of them really had to think very hard, except specifically about language and translation and words. So when they got out into the real world, they completely floundered. And then when something big like that hit them, everybody went into panic mode and nobody was thinking straight. And then they tired themselves out because they couldn't get any sleep and that just made it worse. So, I mean, it's a little bit of headcanon to sort of fill that in and make me less frustrated mm -hmm. as I was reading, but I don't like to be frustrated while I'm reading. So th those are the uh, the <laughs> mental gymnastics that I went through to make myself well, less frustrated. I, th I think if you work in academia, you meet a lot of people who perhaps have won you know, Nobel Prizes and are geniuses in the world and don't know how to turn the lights on in their office. So it's kind of like, you know, you're super expert and super smart and kind of in this this world of yes. thought. And then when you are encountering something that is outside your expertise, it just kind of, you know, you freeze up and you're like, uh, they, they had, this, yeah. this doesn't they had happen weeks. to me. They had weeks on a boat to come up with a better plan than they came up with. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it was okay to show trauma too. I think that's actually mm-hmm. one thing she represents well throughout the story is that there uh, a lot of people, there's so many stories I've, I've watched and seen portrayed in which somebody dies. Everyone's like, okay, that person's dead. Uh, we killed him. Now let's move on. And I'm like, no, people in real life freak out. And I thought mm-hmm. she captured these young people freaking out to an inordinate degree because their entire, they saw basically their entire world was over and they're facing death or life in hard imprisonment, torture and, and worse. And um, maybe it was, you know, heavy handed, but it, it did feel like they're, they were actually anticipating what could go, what could happen if they failed, not, not making good plans. They didn't have a steady diet of um, like midsummer murders to watch, to tell them how to handle <laughs> the problem, you know, like Robin was punished for reading fiction. Oh. Um, instead of well, I mean, he he missed a meeting with his tutor, so like a lecture, sure, but um, yeah, they weren't they weren't worldly by any stretch I, of the imagination. I, I totally get what you're all saying, and Erica, please take this in in the kindest way possible. <laughs> Head cannon rejected. Um, <laughs> fair. That's fair. It's like literally all you have to do is walk off the boat and say, "Oh, he died. He died on the journey." He was buried at sea. It's very yeah. sad. It's, it's yeah. not real. It's, this is not a twisty, turning mystery. It's like so, oh, so many things, so many unforced errors. He died. On the, he died back true. in China. Go check it out with the people in China. Well, we <laughs> I felt we like we almost did fall into a cozy mystery. It's like they get to his house and there's a there's a neighbor who wants to bring him food, and on the coach and they're like, no, 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 no it, go away. It, it, we it, killed somebody. It does become comedic after a while, where they're like yeah. they continue to go down this path. It's like, well, it's you. you you all you had to do was say he died on the voyage, and now it's like every step they take, it's like oh boy, these kids. Which I appreciate. I appreciate that they have no idea what they're doing, um, and and yet they're supposed to overthrow an empire, uh, but they do. Yeah, yeah, with you. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. So we've talked about this book a lot. Uh, one of the things that drew me to this book in the first place is the idea that there's this whole thing about language and magic and turns out silver bars and that it, there's all this conversation about like different languages being used. And even in there, there's uh, some implicit criticism of empire, the idea that you have to travel far and wide in the world in order to collect languages because they are the power, that the differences that draw the empire. But of course, the more homogenous the empire gets, the less power the words have. It's an interesting um, interesting magic system, and it is sort of undergirding this book. We haven't talked about it a lot, so I wanted to ask all of you, um, and we'll start with Glenn for no reason in particular, except I know for he no loves magic reason. systems. Are we not talking? Systems. Does it, are we not talking about it because the the other things in this book, like all the deaths and the and the uh, and the themes, are so powerful? Um, or are we? Or or is it not much of a magic system? I I um, I'm curious what you think about about that because I going in I thought that was going to be the big thing in the book and and it turned out uh, to not be. I'll just I'll just lead in briefly, which yes, is please. I think she did such a good job of uh, of painting uh, how it worked and making a plausible case. She like built an argument why this would work, and I was and I found myself thinking. 
oh, I wonder if anyone's tried that. It seems very reasonable. Uh, I mean, if, you know, whatever. But but I think um, she captures attention in the magical system and then moves on to the actual tension that it represents. So we're not, you know, it's it's kind of exciting and it's clever. I think one of her most subversive elements of using this magic system is that, uh, if I'm remembering this right, it seems to be several times, you know, as we get through the book, Further, we discover that they need to go far, farther afield for languages because the better people understand each other, the worse the magic works. You actually have to have this active tension and sort of people who really get the language, but it can't, the meanings can't come too close together or they stop having that, uh, that effect. So I, I kind of, I kind of dug. I guess I dug that she built a magical system that was uh, airtight to the extent that we then don't even need to talk about it as much as one would think. But then we get Victoire, who wants to learn Creole as one mm. of her languages, and they're like, nope, that's a silly idea. Mm -hmm. You need to learn one of these more popular languages. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I get it. But on the other hand, it's like, but you need the rarity of the language for it to be meaningful and powerful. But that's um, that's academia again. That's like it is. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. But like, and I think too. I think the magic system is really powerful and well thought out, but it's also kind of boring. And when only a few people can do the thing and not even like not even anybody can activate a specific silver bar. It has to be someone who can dream in the languages of the silver bar because you have to be so intimately familiar with it and so intimately intimately into it. It just becomes like, I don't know, like owning an iPhone in 2012 or something where it's like, it's like some people like That's that great. happens. It's kind of cool. But so what? Uh, and I understand like infrastructure and everything is built upon it, but it was kind of in practice for me, a a boring side note. You know what? I agree. And yet I loved it. Um, I I think I think it's so cool. Yes, yeah. that's that's exactly it. And I think that in a way it's kind of genius because if it had been a real flashy magic system that was really fascinating, like that was exciting in and of itself, that would have completely changed the balance of the book. And I mean, maybe to some of us that would have been for the better. But I think for me, it was perfect that it's this system that is, in a way, kind of blasé because it is just pieces of society that you literally chunk together to, you know, make it work. And that's how a lot of colonialism and empire works. Like it is just this stuff that chugs on in the background and people tend to ignore it and take it for granted. And that's exactly what happens here. And I think for me, I was so excited about it to start with because it was like, yes, language translation. Now, I am mm -hmm. not fluent in any other language than English, but I have like a smattering of Spanish that I learned in, in high school and college. And even just the little bit that I learned from my terrible high school Spanish classes, uh, the idea of translating from one language to another has always seemed like magic to me to start with. So the idea that you have a word in one language and a word in the other language that mean kind of the same thing, but there's connotations versus denotations. And those connotations are different enough that that's where the magic comes from. Like even last night, I randomly decided to watch a, a teen rom-com on, uh, on Netflix and I chose uh, Confessions of an Invisible 
Invisible Girl, which is from Brazil. And so it's all in Portuguese. I quickly had to switch over from from dubbing to uh, to subtitles. And I got about halfway through the movie and I was like, this is a terrible title for this movie. Invisible Girl doesn't make any sense. She's not invisible. She's just like, you know, she's an outcast. <laughs> she's a nerd. And I went and looked and sure enough, the actual title uh, in Portuguese was uh, the word was uh, excluado, which is like excluded. So Confessions of an Excluded Girl, which I guess not as flashy of a title as you would want for a Netflix film. So I it's understand why they action skyscraper. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say yes. Yeah, so, uh, Erica, may I introduce you to the Netflix series Money Heist? Yes, yes. <laughs> which is, I have also which is House of Paper. and left at that. Yes, mm. uh, and so so anyway, it just it just seemed to be funny that here I was musing over the differences between you know these two choices of words that are similar enough that they work, and I was just like, yeah, what kind of magic would this create if I inscribed one of these words on one end of a silver bar and another <laughs> one on the other end? And so I, I think that the that this is probably the most interesting magic system that I have seen created in a very long time because just like everything else that is so accessible about this book it is so rooted in the real world and the way things work so so i think all in all that kind of ended up being my favorite part of the book even though it is a little bit on the boring side and it is a little bit just sort of ho-hum by the end of the book the the system itself is not what's exciting it is the fact of its being an underpinning of the way that the empire continues to be the empire and how the empire is then having to shift into different ways of, of being taking in more people of color because they're stuck with it because they did it to themselves it's just just, yeah, but don't, don't you think that that's the highlight of the of the arrogance of colonialism when they're talking mm-hmm. about what they need is silver? Like silver is the thing that drives everything. But without the translators, yeah. without these people from these foreign countries, the silver is just silver. It's just metal. And, lang- and not even the, the translators, right. just the language. They need it, the words. They need they right. They need the words. They need the understanding. But yet their arrogance is these people are so much less. I mean, they, they go over and they grow a couple. I mean, basically, because they can't trust, yeah. you know, bringing yeah. somebody, Ew. you know, at, at having, you know, the intelligence to do that. So it's like they both, they're looking down on their biggest resource rather than embracing that. And that's just the arrogance of colonialism, which is just hammered well, through this book. They- Basic level, Deb, it's viewing human beings as raw material too, right? Which is yeah. the story yes. of uh, imperialism and slavery. So it's right. It's ba- it's all like, again, this book is rich with that stuff. It's not missing any of that. Right. Stuff. Well, I mean, and I think that's the thing is it's fascinating to me about the magic system was it's both very thin and also in, in, intrinsic to the story. Like it is. Yes. It is. Its mm-hmm. nature is so connected to the rest of the plot. But even if it doesn't go into a lot of detail. And I, I mean, as someone who has studied four other languages in his life. Like I, I'm here for it. I was super interested in the idea behind it. And I realize it's not the kind of book necessarily where we're going to go into the, like the delve into the magic system is really like the, the meat of the book, but it, 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 yeah, it's still very important to the overall fabric of the plot. So I, I found that it was weird, right? Like it does feel almost like you could swap it out for something like, the Industrial Revolution, which it is clearly meant to uh, mimic, yeah. um, and yet at the same time, its nature is such that it is it is fundamental to the story. And by removing it, it's like removing a a strut to a bridge or something like that. So I don't I want that bridge felt, to collapse. Yeah, yeah. Westminster. <laughs> that's what happens. Thought- it's kind of really practical thing though. Too that's interesting is that it actually uh, it tries to be rational in that um, you know it's something that 
drives me crazy about certain other magic systems. And and someday, if it all goes well, we'll do a magic, magic draft, draft to talk about it. Magic <laughs> draft. Uh, but, I mean, it's only it's been that, percolating for five years, so you could give it more. Time I know. If well, you someday, want to. someday, someday. Uh, but the uh, the fact that there is a there is an ostensible reason in this world that if you come up with the right pairs of words, the words actually make sense why you're getting the effect. And I thought I thought this author was must be as irritated as I am about completely like. Too much hand wavium in some magic systems. I prefer no hand wavium rather than a little hand wavium or too much, right? And so she gives us just the right amount of hand wavium to say, aha, the two words intention and maybe even a third word provide the effect, but you have to discover what they are because it's a scientific process. And I'm like, yay, gold star. Mm-hmm. Silver star. So silver star. I want to, we we can, uh, we can, we'll wrap this up pretty quickly. I wanted to mention one other, one other thing, and then I'll go around and see if anybody else has anything else to say about this book. My last thing is that there is a scene they go, so they go to China and there's a scene where Robin, our main character has some time to speak to an official in his native language. And it, I think it's a really interesting moment because it's, I mean, he's he is the other in that scene, and yet he's also not. And it's funny that this is our main character, and other than the opening scene where his mother dies and he's taken away, um, he this is the only scene, I believe, where he converses with somebody else from his from where he's from in his native language, and has a conversation that is from the perspective of Chinese people. And not the British Empire, and I just was struck by that uh, sort of midway through this book that 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 our main character is so uprooted and he's valued for his connection to this place, and yet he has almost no connection to the place. It just struck me as a really remarkable scene, and that's the moment where they where they're like, "Oh no, we're not gonna. There's gonna be a war. We're gonna blow up the opium ship." And yeah, and you also notice that we never learn his Chinese name, right? We don't. Mm -hmm. It's never it's never told. There's a good uh, ref or not reference, but this reminds me a bit of the uh, Neil Stevens, another Neil Stevenson book, uh, the Diamond Age, um, where uh, the, one of our protagonists winds up going deep into what is Chinese territory and meeting with like the the highest ranking person who will speak to an outsider who is the one of the lowest ranking people in the entire empire, right? Because otherwise, anybody above that is too exalted to speak to this person from you know, the island or whatever. And uh, it had a little bit of that too, where like this one figure is, they'll speak, he has much more respect for the translator who's been ripped out of his culture than anybody else from the British Empire. Yeah, it's the Imperial High Commissioner is is who Robin speaks to. And honestly, for me, that character who is in that one scene and speaks very briefly is kind of my favorite character because he is the one who seems the most like rational and, you know, he is he is doing things that make sense to protect his people and his country. And he is just like, he's not faffing about, he is getting to the heart of it. He is asking the tough questions. He's asking to talk to the translator alone and he gets the information that he needs. He does it quickly. He does it elegantly. And, and yeah, I think that would be like my final thought about the book is that as I think about it, my favorite character is somebody who appeared very briefly. And I would like to read a book about him now. It's funny, Erica, you say that because I, I kind of agree with you. And at the same time, uh, I find it funny that he is in such proximity to, I think, my least favorite character in the book. And I don't mean yes. the character I dislike, 
so much as I mean the character that struck oh. me most is the cartoonish villain. <laughs> yeah. Who yep. is the, mm-hmm. the uh, what is his name? Mr. Bayless? Yeah, yeah. Who's just, he's just a caricature. And I understand these people, like a lot of the people she references there existed. They are real people from history. The Reverend, the Gutloff or whatever, the German, real mm-hmm. dude. Um, like Oh, no. Yeah, there there are bad people in there, and like, yeah, I totally get it. Lots of there were lots of awful people, and they probably were pretty awful. But they also come across as, to me, mustache twirling cartoon villains at times. Which is like, you don't even need to do that. This stuff is plenty bad on its own without having to turn these people into caricatures. Yeah, I wonder how caricature it was, though, because the reason that it feels so caricature is because they are completely talking down to these people who are around their dinner table with them and treating them as like as objects instead of people. And I mean, it did feel cartoony, but I bet it was pretty. I'm not legit. saying it's not real, but there's no way there's honestly no way to know. I mean, these people are long dead True. and probably not enough evidence. And it just it felt me it felt to me like, again, gilding the lily of the point of like, mm. I am sure there are accurate portrayals of this, but I'm I'm also not convinced that you're not making the point that you've already made and that this does not necessarily serve it. There's a scene like that that's excruciating, but I recommend it highly because it involves British people and uh, and uh, a person of Chinese origin, I think, in uh, it's Margaret Dumas, uh, The China Lover, the movie that was made from that um, with, uh, oh gosh, that's like 30 years ago. But there's a scene where he, the older... Chinese lover comes to dinner with his unfortunately underage uh, mistress with her family. And so he's not in a great position, but the, the way in which this British family treats him. And I think in Macau or Hong Kong is just, it is so appalling. um, You just want to, you know, throw up afterwards. Sounds great. Glenn. Thanks. Sorry. It's a great movie. (laughs) Sorry. It's a great movie. Any last thoughts about Babel before we move along? I just have one. Mm-hmm. Um, in in reading this, um, you know, Letty was a very uncomfortable character for me to read as a white woman because I recognized her behaviors in conversations that I've had with people, um, her reliance on authority. You know, if you just listen to the police, nothing bad will happen to you, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious. I have not had a conversation about this book with any of the other people who may be representative by race in this book and to get what their perspective would be after reading it and the conversations that we would have because I recognized Letty in my community, you know, people who feel themselves to be allies, who feel themselves to be feminist um, and just, you know, the righteous indignation that they have when their efforts are not appreciated and they're not seen on the same field as, you know, the, the sort of the, uh, what do they call it? The, the, the Olympics of pain, you know, how's my pain <laughs> register against your pain wow. sort of thing. So uh, I would be really interested to talk to some, you know, to some people who are represented in this book and like, what was it like? What was your experience reading this? What was your truth in reading this? So to wrap this up, you know, here's what I'll say about this book. I found it interesting and challenging and smart and well-written. I think we've detailed the things that it does well, as well as some of its flaws. Um, and I, I think even those of us who would like it would probably agree that um, it, it feels like it's maybe a little too long and a little too repetitive, but I also can't discount it because I I think it is a, a really impressive work, even if um, there are aspects of it that, that I don't like as much. And I'm glad I read it. So thank you, Scott. And I will say that I do agree that it is a little too long. 
but I do think the repetition is integral to the book and it is part of how it is structured. And so while I can understand that people may not like it, I think just keep pounding the same yeah. idea because this is happening for thousands of years. Sure. People have been doing this and not really understanding it and slowly realizing it. So I think that it's the huge idea of the book and uh, it is a blunt instrument because it is a blunt subject that is, you know, bad people to bad things. Good people with good people not paying attention, yeah, and that's basically what it all boils down to. And even good people, like norm, regular people, do bad things. Be, like horrible things happen because of some bureaucrat in a building that you've never heard of that signs a piece of paper, and then in some country, hundreds of thousands of people die because of it. So that's you know, it's not an uplifting book, but I think it's it's an important book. <laughs> And I imagine... Scott, you did way, did it way <laughs> under 545 pages, too. <laughs> it's true. And I imagine that um, it will be showing up on many college syllabuses in the near future. I mm -hmm. hope so. Yep. Not in Florida, but... Well, oh. <laughs> I, I got one thing to say, if that's yep. all right. <laughs> Is, uh, I thought the book had a little bit of Wakandaism in it, in that I say, and I, I use that in the sense of uh, she's not doing you know exoticism. Um, she presents... Things that are often, uh, you know, Orientalism and and things that are exoticized by people in in European culture. She, of course, is avoiding all those traps because um, because of her pos particular position and what the novel's about. But I think there is like the whole thing about the opium trade. There is a little bit of a wish fulfillment thing here. Of what if China did not suffer the British's imposition of the opium trade? And part of this book is about preventing that, right? And so, just like it would be nice to believe that. There is a nation of people in Africa who actually had the power, although then you wonder why they didn't use it, which is a whole issue, right, for all their brethren who are suffering, you know, literally at their borders. Um, same thing here is like, what if we reimagine this? And even though everything is really terrible and empire is bad, what if we could stop the opium trade? What if these four people could stop the opium trade and stop the destruction of, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of people's lives? And and I kind of both appreciate that, but I think it is, it is also... Um, there is that element of that of like, what if we could rewrite the past? And sometimes it's important to do that to excise trauma as well. All right. Um, let's move on to a different topic, which is uh, just a really quick pass around to see if there are any books that uh, the members of the book club have read lately that they would like to recommend. Let's start with Aline. Aline, anything that you are reading that you'd like to recommend? Yeah. This is what I, I used to call, what are we reading? But we're not reading anything right now. We're doing a podcast. So the, the Truth Squad got me on that. So now it has no yep. title at all. Aline, what were you reading? <laughs> what have I read? Um, what were you in the process of? Last time I meant to mention The Spare Man by Mary Robinette Kowal, and I neglected to. So I want to mention that the audiobook is always good um, when she narrates, which she does. And it's kind of, it was billed as the thin man in space. Um, <laughs> and it is, uh, there's even a little dog, a cute little dog. Um, I liked it because it touches very realistically on chronic pain, um, managing chronic pain, <laughs> being injured, um, things that I don't see like good representation of in books. She also uh, did a good job of uh, imagining a world where we're less uh, obsessed with um, 
I'll say traditional pronouns for people. Um, and she had some sensitivity readers for that. So I think that she does a pretty good job of um, making space for um, not assuming the gender of people. And there are also cocktail recipes throughout. Yeah, there that are. Is your thing. Um, <laughs> I I know, tried about, <laughs> I've tried about half of them already. They're yeah, all good. I know. I know that Erica has done that. So um, I, I thought it was a fun read. I really wished for some of the pain management that exists in some of it. Oh, um, oh. The other, um, another book is uh, I recently got caught up on in the Ruth Galloway mysteries, which I started reading because Scott told me to, and I really, really love them. It's a typical story. Um, Scott told me to. <laughs> Yep. Scott told Anything me he to. tells us to do, we do it. Yep, we do it. Yep, he's got a lot of power. Um, the next book is coming out this summer, so you've got time to catch up. It is the last book for now, whatever that means. Um, so if you've been waiting to read the Ruth Galloway mysteries until the last book, now's your time to get started on that. And the last one is actually a book that I finished this morning called A Witch in Time by Constance Sayers. And it is about a woman who has lived, she's in her fourth life. She has been reincarnated because of a curse her mother accidentally put on her. And she has been linked with some of the same people throughout her lives. And it's kind of an interesting exploration of like actually remembering past lives and using that information to influence um, the now um, and the future. And I thought it was, you know, it wasn't like the best book in the world, but it was pretty dang good. And I, I enjoyed it. I haven't read anything structured quite the same way that this is. Nice. Erica, how about you? Uh, Oh, I have to start with a couple of great follow-ons uh, one of the, I've been catching up on some of my short fiction reading in Uncanny Magazine and one of those stories is called Cold Relations by someone named Mary Robinette Kowal uh, and which is a a story about witchcraft in a world where witchcraft exists and is sort of cracked down on by the government and um, it uh, is set in I think it's I think it's Alabama and I during our recent incomparable episode about the peripheral we were talking about how refreshing it was to see characters from the U.S. South who are portrayed as fully developed characters uh, who are smart and savvy and interesting. And this story did a good job with that. Uh, I quite liked it. Uh, and then another story in the same issue is called How to Raise a Kraken in Your Bathtub by P. Jelly Clark. <laughs> and it is like, honestly, it kind of worked as a piece with reading Babel because it is a story about a gentleman in England who just has a lot of that sort of empire hubris and decides to uh, he reads a pamphlet and he's like oh yes if I I can make a lot of money if I raise a kraken in my bathtub and start showing it off and it goes about like you would expect and it's uh, there are some things in there I won't ruin for you but it is it's, it's kind of nice to to see somebody like that sort of brought low in an entertaining way um, I'm surprised you could fit that many hockey players in a bathtub <laughs> <laughs> Aline, I have stories for you. Never mind. Never mind. Oh. <laughs> That's why Hockey Canada is in trouble right now, Eric. Yes. Oh. Oh. oh, dear. Um, okay, so that's that's the short fiction. Also, uh, our previous book club episode, I was still working my way through the uh, 
the the trilogy of Scarlet Bernard books by Melissa F. Olson. And I had not finished yet. I have now finished the third book in the trilogy, Hunter's Trail. Um, as I mentioned before, the main character, Scarlet Bernard, is a null in this um, urban fantasy series. So she can basically turn off the magic of the vampires and werewolves around her. At the end of the second book, she has done something big. I won't spoil what it is, but it completely changes the sort of the fabric of, of the wolf pack. The, the werewolf pack and throws a lot of stuff into chaos. And that is uh, sort of what the, the third book deals with. And it, you know, you never know if they're going to stick the landing. And she really did it, so much so that this is th- this trilogy is over. But there are other books in this old world universe. And I am 100 percent going to be tracking some more of them down because it was one of those things where like it ended. And then two days later, I was like, oh, I want to go back and read some more mm. in that world. And I was like, oh, the book's done. <gasps> but there are more books. So. Excited about that. And then um, I also zipped really fast through a novel called Her Majesty's Royal Coven by Juno Dawson. And only about halfway through the book did Stephen happen to notice uh, the cover of it. And he's like, oh, Juno Dawson, she's the uh, the writer of Doctor Who Redacted. And I was like, she what? Um, it's a Doctor Who audio, which was fantastic and super queer. And I loved it. Um, well, Erica, you waited book... 75 minutes before making a Doctor Who reference. I'm I did, very I got it in. disappointed in you, but... Uh, <laughs> Good job. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's five um, points for Erica for oh, sorry, show. <laughs> uh, this is this is about um there is a, a group of, of young girls uh, and they take an oath to join Her Majesty's Royal Coven. It was uh, established by Queen Elizabeth I as sort of a, a covert government department helping, you know, defend the the land from evil things. And uh, it's, it's all women in the coven, although there is also uh, warlocks. Um, they have a, a different organization. And it... Uh, like the first chapter is them as kids and then it jumps forward many years in the interim there's been a civil war uh some of them have PTSD they have they have gone through it some of them have lost spouses like it's they are are you know racked with all of this and some uh some of the the witches who can see the future are impending doom is coming it's going to be worse than the war and uh it all centers around this uh this young witch who turns out is trans. And it is like, you know, sometimes you read a book and it's like, this is a, you know, the the trans metaphor is buried in here. There's no metaphor. It is, it is right in your face. And it is, I think, done spectacularly well. And the idea of, of layering on the ideas of, you know, moon worship and the goddess of the earth and witchcraft and all of these like stereotypically feminine things and then bringing a trans character into it and having them try to navigate how that works. And there's also like class politics and race politics, uh, but all of it is wrapped up in this really fascinating, very British, uh, exciting like adventure story with with superpowers and witchcraft. And it was so good. I read it in like two and a half days. And then when I was sad uh, because the next book is not out for a while. So I definitely recommend Her Majesty's Royal Coven. And just a quick note of the book that I'm reading right now of Charms, Ghosts, and Grievances by Aliette de Baudard. It is a story in her fallen like angels universe. Um, and it's 
so far like a kind of a cozy mystery almost. The uh, this um, super hot fallen angel and his husband, who is a dragon prince, but like a total cinnamon roll, uh, are they have to babysit while they're on vacation and a ghost shows up and things go terribly wrong. And right now I'm in the, in the middle of the things go terribly wrong bit, but it's just it's this adorable couple trying to, you know, manage each other while managing a bunch of children uh, while managing to escape uh, a bunch of murderers. And um, it's anyway, if, if any of that sounds good to you, uh, it's it's pretty short. I think it's either a novelette or a novella and just like a couple of hours to read. And it was exactly what I needed to start reading today. So if you want some some comfort uh, reading that will bring you some joy, uh, but also some some blood, some blood, maybe a little sex. Uh, this is for you. Those are mine. All right. Glenn. I have a book. I read a book. Amazingly. I read two books, including what? Babel, which makes me happy. It's unheard of. Uh, and uh, this book came out actually even recently. It's only two months old. Uh, Dr. No, not that one. The other one, as I keep finding when I tell people I've read Dr. No and they start talking about Ian Fleming and other things like, no, 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 not that Dr. No, the one by Percival Everett. Uh, And uh, it's a book about nothing, which you can imagine appeals to me. Um, It's a breezy 232 pages, which might appeal to other people. Uh, But it's kind of science fiction-y. The main character, first-person protagonist, is a professor, and it seems like he – uh, his specialty is nothing that is actually like the nature of nothing. And so talking about it is fun. I tried to explain the plot to my 15 year old and they just kept looking at me with squinting more and more, but it's, he studies nothing. He thinks that nothing is extremely powerful. Like the, like the absolute absence of anything is actually a difference than like there being something uh, being empty. And so it turns into, of course, very quickly, this is not really a spoiler. It's in all the books on the book jacket, uh, a supervillain plot where somebody contacts him and wants him essentially he believes that nothing is an extremely powerful weapon under the control of the U.S. government, and he wants to obtain it. Um, so it's a uh, you know it's it's a kind of uh, romp. Uh, two of the main characters are uh, the autism spectrum, including the protagonist, and presented in a way that I think is not. Uh, not unfair. There's a number of the characters in the book are black and presented in a way that if I did not know the author was black, I might be looking at a little askance, but not badly, but just in kind of particular ways. So, uh, and I think it, I don't know that it lands the ending, uh, but I did not in any way regret reading it. And I really liked it as it went along and kind of forced me to try to conceptualize the absence of something that was not empty. It's really hard on your brain, but kind of entertaining too. So uh, I think a, a, a good read, very quick read compared to today's title and, um, and uh, provocative. All right. Deb, how about you? Um, I'm actually going to throw a nonfiction book in the, into the, oh, into nice. the pot. Um, it's called the living mountain by Nan Shepard. And it was written in the 1940s, but it wasn't published until the 1970s. Um, and Anne Shepard was a writer, a Scottish writer, poet, um, nature writer. And it is honestly the most beautiful book I have ever read in my life. Um, she talks about the, a Cairngorm, a mountain that she walked all the time in the Cairngorms. And she just looks at every single aspect of this mountain. She looks at water. She looks at the things that live on it. She looks at the grass. And to, just the language is gorgeous. It's very poetic, but it's also, 
she's very knowledgeable. I mean, she talks about just, you know, laying in the grass and looking at the grass. And I'm not selling this book at all. It's not very long. Um, now you're but selling just, it. It's, <laughs> it's one of those books that you get caught up in the language. You get caught up in her feelings about nature and talking about this mountain and the people that live on the mountain, the things that grow on the mountain, the history of the mountain, people that die on the mountain. Um, and it just, if, if you're looking for something to just feed your soul and make you just feel good about life and feel good about the natural world, this is, this is a great place to start. It, it was honestly, it was one of the most gorgeous things I've ever read in my life. Thank you. Scott. Uh, Jason, uh, I have read some <laughs> books. Uh, speaking of empire, one of the things that I'm interested in is um, Roman history. Uh, and in particular, uh, I think it is such a, uh, an interesting moment. In Pompeii is a big kind of historical event that we all know about because it's so, you know, the, the city is frozen in time. And I, uh, I, they have this touring exhibitions if you if, if there's an exhibit the pompeii exhibition in your area ever you should go because they actually have casts of the the bodies that uh were you know entombed by ash uh so it's just a thing that you know has a big takes up a lot of room in my head as i think about things and uh robert harris who is uh, a novelist who i often forget is a good writer wrote a book called pompeii set in pompeii uh like a week before uh, Mount Vesuvius erupts, uh, and it follows this, um, basically aqueducts stop working, and this engineer has to try to figure out why, uh, and as you're reading it, of course, you're filled with dread because you know what's going to happen, and they don't, um, but he does fix the aqueduct. And then he dies, but the, you know, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, actually, well, I won't, I won't give any spoilers for that, but it's a really good book. It's, it's also short. So, uh, you should check it out if you like historical fiction. And the other book I read is by Ian McDonald. It's coming out mid-February. Uh, it's called Hopeland. I read, um, I, I, there's this website called NetGallery. You can sign up for it and then you can request advanced copies. And for some reason they accepted my request. And so I gobbled down <laughs> this book, which is, uh, not short. 800 pages, uh, but it is, E. McDonald's one of my favorite authors. He has, and I've said this before on podcasts and blog posts and everywhere, but he seems to be kind of uh, looking for commercial success. And I don't say that in a mean way. Like he just, he's, he's a fantastic writer, but yes. I feel like he wants to, he wants to sell a book to have a TV series so he can have George R.R. R. Martin money. Uh, and who blame, who can blame him? Uh, I would also like that. Um, so I think for the last several books, he's kind of been trying to do that. And I've enjoyed all those books. Um, but this book, I think he comes back to, well, I want to write a book that I like. Uh, that is not that he doesn't like his own books. I don't know him. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> this book is beautiful. I uh, It made me cry three times and I don't cry. Uh, and one of those wow. was during the, the acknowledgement at the end because his partner died. And this book is all about mm -hmm. love and family and found family and and, you know, climate disasters and it's all this it's and it's it does this amazing trick of it's kind of it starts in the near past but it makes it feel like a science fiction thing like it, it's just like five years ago in london but it feels so alien um and and one of the families is uh, our electromancers and there are cruise ships it's 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 I'm sold. bonkers uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a, that book this is a great book Everyone should read it. 
uh, when it comes out. Uh, Scott, I would like to option your discussion of this book as a mini series because I, I was really oh no ian I mcdonald's was, lost his chance oh no <laughs> right. i was really moved by your discussion he wrote he wrote those books that were like the godfather on the moon um mm-hmm. that were really great but but yeah oh, we talked at the time about mm, uh, the, the okay. uh, wolf moon or whatever that that those are uh, oh, that yeah. was him trying yeah. to like please somebody make a tv show of my books <laughs> Uh, cause I guess nobody wanted to make a no, movie about the, the Mellified Man in the Dervish House. I know, me too. Oh, it's a oh. great book. Nobody made a movie about that. Hopeland. Yeah. And what was the other one, Scott? Uh, Pompeii by Robert Harris. Uh, by Robert Harris. All right. There's an actor. I remembered a book I was reading, Jason. All right. Dan, oh, how about you? Uh, I put down this book to read, uh, Babel, but I'm looking forward to get back to it. It's called The Puzzler. Uh, it's a nonfiction book by A.J. Jacobs, uh, who has written a number of other books that are kind of weird. Like he's got, he wrote, I did not read this one, but he wrote The Year of Living Biblically, where he tries to live by all the commandments of the Bible. He wrote one that I did read about reading, I want to say, I think it's Britannica from A to Z. Um, anyways, I, he's he's written a bunch of different things. And now he's writing a book about puzzles, about the history of puzzles and oh, why we oh. like puzzles and what what it is about people creating puzzles and it's got some puzzles in it and um yeah i read the chapter so far i'm only a few chapters in but he has a whole one on the rubik's cube and why 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 are we so captivated by it so like you know it's um yeah exactly so uh i'm really enjoying that as somebody who enjoys puzzles a lot um i i've really enjoyed that and it's got like i said um i think there is a uh uh okay. yeah there are some like puzzles that you can solve and stuff like that as well as part of it so it's cool i read i read his book about reading the, the encyclopedia which that's one was, yeah i read that one too that was i it think was good. some of the other books were yeah it's good i think it's some of the other books were better yeah. yeah a lot a lot in it in the encyclopedia mm-hmm. and out. you don't it, say if that wasn't enough i have two um i read and liked um the kaiju preservation society by john scalzi it's fun i think i think our own um mastermind overlord uh inspiration scott mcnulty described it as it's good it's a fast read i mean it's not gonna like blow you away um and it, it delivers what it says it's going to do <laughs> but it, it really does i mean and he wrote it he wrote it in the depths of the pandemic having blown through a completely blown a book deadline and decided he couldn't write that book and then he sat down and this book came out in the middle of of lockdown and it is a release and fun and light about people who go to a parallel earth to try and make sure that the kaiju on that parallel earth, because that's where they come from, uh, don't die. And uh, it's fun, right? It's just, it's fun. It's not, is it great mm-hmm. art? Eh, no, it doesn't have to be. It's fun. Um, however, when I talk about art, <laughs> Sarah Gailey's novel, The Echo Wife, is one of the best things I've read in a very long time. They are an uncanny magazine contributor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've read some of their stuff before. Hugo nominee, Upright Women Wanted, I read last year. Anyway, The Echo Wife is a novel about a brilliant scientist who discovers that her husband is divorcing her because he is cheating on her with a clone of her that he made <sighs> using her cloning technique that she invented. Oh. And if that sounds like a good elevator pitch, what I want to say is that doesn't even remotely do the book justice because the book is about 
it's about so much more. Um, the characters, several surprising things happen. That's <laughs> a good for a book. Um, and it is thoroughly, and I've said this on the, on this podcast before, I really love works that thoroughly in, in, investigate their premises, their own premises. And the echo wife does that a, a lot. So I loved it. So people should check it out. It's, Jason. Uh, yes. I just want to let you know that I am uh, keeping up with my uh, continued tradition of purchasing at least one book while we are recording the podcast. <laughs> I have just bought The Echo Wife on Kobo. So thank you. Uh, you're you're welcome. It's yeah, I actually um, I listened to that one, which I never do audiobooks, but I was on a very long drive. And so I uh, I listened to that one. Uh, mm-hmm. And the the audiobook was good, although I'm not one to judge audiobooks because, again, what do I know? But um, <laughs> the book, I just, I, I really, I was very impressed. Um, they do a great job of sketching out this world and taking it to its logical conclusions. And it goes, I, I, I think my biggest um, praise of it would be, I feel like you get about a third of the way through and that would be enough premise and story for a novel and there's so much more after that (laughs) um and it is about it is about how women are treated in the sciences and in general and relationships between men and women and uh, and sisterhood sort of and um also what ingredients are best if you're cloning somebody and what ingredients are best if you're dissolving a body anyway there's a lot going on in the echo wife i really do recommend it and that brings us to the end of a book club good book book club everybody good job yeah Yeah. thank you scott now comes a new segment that we just started last time and now we've brought it back what will you be reading (laughs) what will we be reading yes that's right it is going to be our next selection and you can read along with us. Uh, it's a Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, the author of Station Eleven. It's shorter than this one. Uh, just, just a little. It's <laughs> shorter than, than Babel by uh, a lot. Um, and that's not the only reason we picked it, but it is one reason it we picked it. It is one of them. <laughs> so we'll be reading that next, and uh, that episode will be out in, I don't know, about a month-ish. Uh, so you've got plenty of time to read it, and we've got plenty of time to read it. Uh, but until then, I want to thank my book club for being here tonight. This was lovely. I hope everybody got enough cheese and wine and uh, crackers, let's say. <laughs> Aline Sims, thank you. I always like talking about books. It's nice. Books are good. Erica Ensign, thank you. I'm just happy to be part of the club. Yeah, clubs. They're, they're great. Uh, Glenn <laughs> Fleischman, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on this episode. Dan Morin, thank you. Books, 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 books. books. Everybody should That's buy mine. books. <laughs> he stole yes. my line. Yeah. Uh, Deb Stanish, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Sorry, slightly distracted because I'm currently purchasing Hopeland. Yeah, see, <laughs> this is the book club sells a lot of books to the people who are on book club. See, that's not there's something. That's it's not, not a business not model. Not as sustainable that's, as you'd like to think. No. Yeah. That's a, that's the third rule of book club. Yeah, yeah, it is. You got to buy the books. Scott McDulty, thank you. Hmm. Thank Scott. Thank you for suggesting this book. I uh, am glad we read it. Oh well, thank you, Jason. I don't, hmm, 
I feel like he's he's, he's going to double cross me. Is this a, a trick of some kind? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I said thank you. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you don't just, know how to say thank you. I don't know. It's it's a scary font or something. Oh uh, and thanks God. everybody out there for listening to the book club. We will no. see you with the Sea of Tranquility in a little bit and with a new episode of The Incomparable Mothership next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>